Welcome to this episode of my podcast. My name is Kalsum Butt, and I specialize in training medical professionals how to get the score they need in IELTS or OET so that they can get their dream job, take their career to the next level and start living their best life with their families by providing them with bigger and better opportunities. Before I start with the main topic for this week's episode, I just want to make you aware of how you can use this podcast to your maximum advantage. This is no ordinary podcast. You can use this podcast by one, simply listening to the podcast to get some advice that will help you in your IELTS or OET preparation. Number two, actively listening to this podcast to improve your listening skills. I try to keep it short. I know you guys are very busy people, but you can use it for focused listening practice. So you can use the show notes, which is a complete transcript of each episode. You can read the episode as you listen and analyze the language, learn new words or phrases, practice pronunciation and intonation. Number three, Also included in the show notes are some comprehension style questions that you can use by reading the transcript, using your skimming and scanning techniques to answer the questions. Answers are provided at the end, but you can also check your answers by listening to the podcast. Number four, you can use it as a listening test and answer the same questions while listening. And number five, I also include a brief analysis of some useful words or phrases that I have used in the podcast, which you can learn. So it's up to you how you would like to use this tool. Please don't forget to like, subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues and social media so that more people can benefit from it too. So welcome to this podcast. This episode is going to be a little bit different than the other episodes in that I'm not going to be talking about IELTS or OET, but instead what happens after you get your scores. When I started this podcast, I didn't want it to be a normal podcast about IELTS and OET. Obviously, that's my area of expertise and um, it's what I will talk about the majority of the time. But I wanted this podcast to help you with not only getting the score that you need, but to guide you and help you through the whole process of getting to where you want to be, especially if that's the UK, because that's where I live. And I would like to do my very small part and help our NHS, which does an amazing job by helping equally amazing medical professionals like you get to the UK as easily as possible without all the overwhelm and stress and be a source of reliable, authentic information and guidance. Getting the score you need in IELTS or OET isn't often, you know, it's just the beginning of the journey. And really, I want to help you through that whole journey as much as I can. Now, I'm not an immigration specialist. I'm not a recruitment specialist. And I don't know much about the ins and outs of that process. But I do know people that are experts in those areas. So the next few episodes, I will be inviting people who can share really valuable advice on the do's and don'ts of different aspects of that process. So today, 
I have a very special guest, Mr. Ali Mirza, who is the director and founder of Global Executive Solutions based in London. And they specialize in recruiting consultant level, level doctors to the UK. So first of all, um, Ali, thank you very much for taking the time out of your extremely busy day and coming on my podcast and agreeing to speak to my listeners. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So could I start off by asking you to introduce yourself a little bit more, who you are, your background, how you started your company, um, the services that you provide and the type of people that you help? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so I've been working in clinical recruitment for just over 13 years now. Um, we started Global Exec Solutions in 2016. Um, that was when I when I realized that there was a there was a huge market for um, consultant level physicians who are who are basically very heavily required in the NHS, but they weren't really getting the scope of coming into the NHS. Uh, and a lot of these people, um, when I talk about um, physicians and clinical workforce, um, they were people from abroad, um, the people from various different um, backgrounds. Um, when, I, when, I, when I say abroad, then we talk about people from Middle East, people from Europe. And what I what I thought back in that time that you know there was a lot of um, there's a lot that we can do to help these people, and um, <clears throat> it was also the NHS at that point which was going through um, significant um, shortages in in very hard to fill clinical posts. Um, so so I thought why not we bridge the gap, and that's how I came up with Global Exec Solutions of finding out then what is there that we can do to bring in the foreign clinical workforce into the UK and that would eventually help these people who are looking to come into the UK as well as fill in the fill in the gaps where NHS has in these hard to fill clinical posts. Um, my, my main area of expertise has always been clinical recruitment so I've always been liaising with um, medics and, and consultant level physicians. We do some ad hoc work with some middle grade uh, middle grade associate specialist doctors as well um, but I, I would say majority of the work that Global Exec Solutions is involved in is, is pretty much clinical level work, consultant level workforce, um, going all the way up to clinical directors, associate medical directors um, and all the C-suite leadership in the NHS, yeah. Okay, that's great. Um, so what is the process? Could you describe the process um, of, so if, a, if a, a candidate comes to you and you onboard that client, you know, what, yeah. what steps do you take them through? Right, okay. So um, so we work with a number of NHS trusts in the country, um, start all the way from up north to south. Um, and uh, we've got a number of vacancies. And these are the vacancies which the hospitals have tried to filling in themselves and they've not had much luck. So uh, that's when they come and approach us and um, they reach out to us and say, well, Ali, what is this that you, that you guys can do to help us out? So, and these are various clinical positions. I mean, I'm, I'm going to talk about briefly, like consultant acute medicine, consultant diabetes endocrinologist, um, consultant in elderly care, geriatric medicine, um, consultant in, um, you know, radiology, histopathology, uh, dermatology. So these, these are some really hard to fill posts in the UK. Um, and that's purely because there are not that many trainees coming out. So there's a huge gap. Um, and um, what we do is we we basically map out the market. So this is what we do. We, this is how 
this is the value add that we offer to our NHS hospitals and, and the clients that we work with. We, we tell them that, look, we're going to find out from all these people that you there's a vacancy out there and what, and because you've not had much luck is purely because you are not, you need to understand what the candidate is looking for. So, so it's all about managing the expectations of the candidate. So, uh, and we, because of our networks um, in the clinical workforce and the people that know us, we know what they're looking for. So we eventually let, I mean, all the, let inform our plans, Senators Trust, that look, if you are looking to um, fill in these posts that you're really struggling with, then you'll have to think outside the box a little. I mean, those days are gone where you could just attract and recruit by, you know, putting in a job advert and you you, you would just hope for some divine intervention that a candidate would apply. Yeah. But, um, but it doesn't it doesn't really work out like this. These people are very, very well settled where they are, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're recruiting people from the UK, um, which is always the case. Their preference is always people with the NHS experience and people in the UK. But if you are going to, but, but it's one of those things, you can't really, um, you know, take someone out from their existing job and, and put them into your what you have because why would they leave their current job which is pretty much in a very similar situation to what you guys are doing so you know so it's about having that open-minded approach and looking to employ people from abroad where because that could eventually solve your problem um, and then that could also it could also work out in the favor of the candidate as well because he's he or she is trying to come into the UK NHS market so this is what I, I, I always go in and inform my NHS clients and working with the candidates, I always tell them that, you know, um, a lot of candidates do not have the information that they need to to really have a um, have a strong um, GMC application. A lot of these people think that, you know, people don't understand how complex the GMC application process is. Um, so. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, we just need to get a registration and then we'll get the license to practice and that's it, you know. Yeah. It doesn't really work out that way, unfortunately. So it's it's all about um, how you start off the process. So going into GMC application, it's very important for candidates to read through the information, which is on the GMC website, and just familiarise themselves in terms of what is required. So, um, and it's very important that, you know, every set of the application has their own requirements and it's, for, it's very important for them to understand. I'll just give you a brief example. So for registration, there's a certain set of requirements for GMT registration. However, for license to practice, which is a, this is the following stage, which is after the registration, there's a different set of requirements. So people think, oh, just because I haven't got the requirements for license to practice, I cannot apply for registration. That is definitely not the case. So if just because you haven't got the requirements for license to practice, you can still apply for registration. However, you will not be able to move forward to the second stage, which is license to practice, till you satisfy the requirements for license to practice. And this is where a lot of doctors do not understand and they get mixed up. And this is where I tell them that, look, for for registration, you need to provide your primary medical qualification, your PMQs, your experiences, fill in the application, and that is the requirement for registration. However, moving on to the next stage, which is license to practice, that's the only requirement for license to practice is the English language test, um, um, i.e., of OET or an IELTS. So a lot of people think just because they don't have an IELTS and OET, they can't apply. No, they can still apply. They'll get the registration. However, they won't get the license to practice because the requirement for license to practice is an IELTS or an OET test. Once you get that, then you are, um, you can still apply for registration, but once you get the IELTS and OET test, you could you can then send that to the GMC and get a license to practice um, that, you, that you need to work as a clinician in the UK. So, Um, 
I think it's all about uh, people think that it's just uh, it's easy to apply for registration and they will automatically get life practice and all these things. So, but all this information is on the GMC website, but then I understand people from abroad, um, they, a lot of these consultants or physicians do not really have that sort of level of understanding of going through GMC website because GMC website is, is not as user-friendly as it could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, it's the same with IELTS and OET. There's a lot of misconceptions misconceptions out there um and people do things the wrong way around or they don't understand something and you know they continually make the same mistakes and they make life very difficult for themselves so it's really important to get the right information and um reliable information 100 100 and this is where uh, this is where a lot of these kind of come in and um and i think it's very important to I mean, to be honest, for us, they both are stakeholders. The NHS is a stakeholder for us, and we have four stakeholders, which are these candidates looking to get employed. Um, so we, our job is that we provide that service, which um, which the candidates are happy with, and the um, NHS clients. So, so this is what I I take a lot of pride in, in making sure that we provide that. Not mislead anyone, because there are plenty of recruiters out there who are. Who would say things eventually they won't really materialize that way um and and you know eventually the candidates the one who, who eventually oh, have got no clue what's going on um so i literally sit down with my candidates i have literally week, weekly calls with them and all, all these calls are usually 60 to 90 minutes and and where we just go through what is required for the gmc how are we going to do certain things how are we going to go about applying for this? What is the next stage that they could potentially, what is the next paper, set of paperwork that GMC could potentially require? So please keep that handy because you will be asked for it at some point down the line. So, you know, it's, it's, it's purely from experiences that, we, that we've had in, in working with these um, uh, candidates from abroad and then we are able to provide that information. Would you say that's the biggest mistake you see candidates make that slow down the process or make it you know, difficult for them? It was, um, it was, I would say perhaps about 12 to 18 months, that was the case. A lot of people were making that mistake. However, now I've noticed a lot of people are a bit more switched on. Right. So uh, things are a little get, things are getting a little bit better. Um, they are kind of um, slowly understanding through word of mouth or through some, through some friends in the UK who mm -hmm. guide them and say, you know, tell them, give them the information that they require. So I would say things are getting a lot better now. Um, however, it, it Perhaps if you had asked me the same question about 12 to 18 months before, um, it, it, it was there were, there were a lot of mistakes being made at that point, yes. Okay. So once these doctors come over to the UK, um, and you, you've already mentioned how you support them, which is amazing, I think. And I think, you know, um, I think that's what doctors really want now, uh, or any nurses, whoever come over to the UK, they need that support. And it's really good to hear that you provide that support. So, you know, you have those fortnightly calls. Um, what do you think the biggest challenge is once your, your, your candidates move to the UK? What, what are the biggest challenges they face once they're here? The biggest challenges that they face before they even... So once they're interviewed and they offer a job, um, that's where they start preparing. And, and, and it, it really... It's, there's a lot of things that they're really unaware of. So they don't know if they should come alone or they should bring the family alongside. Right. Yeah. That is something that is something that they 
they're never sure about because moving to a new country mm. they're not sure especially people from Middle Eastern background um, they, they're not sure if the, if the family or the kids would be able to adjust in that sort of a, a very uh, Caucasian environment um, and, you know purely because they're not used to it um, and there's also a lot of religious aspect that they, they'd look to consider that you know moving into a new country a new city would they be able to would they would they be able to keep up with their faith you know it's, it's, yeah. it's all about making sure that because a lot of these people I mean everybody has got their own set of priorities but I've noticed people from the Middle East especially they they like to stick to environment where they'll feel a lot more comfortable and it will keep them close to their faith um, so so that's that's one of the really big challenges that they always come across and the, and the questions which I always get thrown at is Ali would there be any halal shops would there be any um, you know mosque around the hospitals would there be any um, any Islamic kind of schools for my kids around th this city that you're putting me forward for yeah. so but that's something that is, is, is a serious concern for them before they even make the move. Once they are in the country, once they arrive, um, I think the, the biggest challenge at that point is, um, you know, I didn't think that a department was so understaffed. You know, I've been um, working 10 to 12 hours every day. You know, I thought um, I've left my nine to five job to come to the NHS. I didn't think I was going to be hit with a department where they asked me to work eight you know 10 to 12 hours you know I'm working some really long hours and uh, I've not given enough time with my family um you know that my family's kind of they've, they've they're sacrificing a lot here uh, because I'm it's a new country new city they're not feeling comfortable going out on their own so it's a lot of these things and and then the biggest one is 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 the salaries and a lot of these people feel very uncomfortable once they receive their first month salary once they're, once they're in the UK and that's purely because uh, they don't really realize what the tax implications are so initially coming into the UK they know what they've been offered I mean in the NHS salaries are pretty evident um, from the salary scale um, they start from 79 go all the way up to 107 110 um, but then they don't realize that although they've been offered, let's say, 80, 85K per annum, they don't realise what, what the tax implications are or how much would they be taxed. So, um, and once they get the first month salary, once that comes into the bank account, they realise they've only they've only got, what, you know, 5,000, between 5,000 and 6,000 pounds. And, and it's something that, that really hits them hard because then they start talking about their calculations and, you know, this is what I'm going to pay for my kids' tuition fee, this is what I'm going to pay to as a rent, this is what I'm going to pay for my car finance. And eventually they're like, we haven't got much to much to save so so this is this is also another concern that they realize that you know what they've really um left back in the middle east and to come and live that sort of similar sort of lifestyle is is not going to happen yeah so how do they overcome that then well then that's when they they tend to realize that we'll have to cut down right. a, lot of, a lot of luxuries that they were probably uh, not not really willing to sacrifice earlier on and so so yeah it's, it's it's basically i mean i get a lot of people especially from the middle east and they say to me um ali we're more than happy to come and consider this role however we would not be want to be closer to london because london's too expensive you know living in london is way too expensive so then then they look for opportunities up in northwest you know um near manchester greater manchester liverpool um uh, you know looking at uh, yorkshire these kind of places not yeah, I, mean, I think the cost of living i think in the uk <laughs> does depend on where about exactly yeah so you know yeah so that's one um, and then and then, then don't forget that they do have these 
behind the scenes conversation going on with their family in the UK or their friends in the UK. Yeah. So they do. So although they're getting they they're getting a lot of info from me, they always like to go back to their friends um, and and get that affirmed if if whatever Ellie's telling us is is, is true. So so yeah. they do. There's that trust element which is always sort of justified whenever they speak to a close family member or a friend. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so then, yeah, then they, then they look at opportunity, exploring opportunities up north and away from London, basically, just because they know living in London is just going to be impossible in that sort of study yeah, scale. Yeah. And so we've talked about quite a bit of the negative side of it. What what do they love about working in the UK when they come here? What do they like? Um, work, well, it's, it's, for, for a lot of people, it's, it's the exposure, it's the experience. Um, they, they, they want to come into the UK just because... Uh, they feel that the UK experience would add a lot of value to their existing CV. Um, and that's that's something that a lot of these people want to make the move for. And they're just looking for that um, extra bit of push um, or just that extra, you know, just what they say, the cherry on the cake on the CV. So that UK NHS experience, they think, would give, would give them that. That's one of the reasons why they, they, they look to make the move. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, the kids... The kids' education is a, is, a, is a huge concern I've noticed in the last three, four years, and um, that they want to make the move purely because they want their kids to have a better future, um, better social life, um, you know, just better quality of life, really. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I've, I definitely agree with that. I think that's, you know, the students that I teach for IELTS and OET, that is them you know, their, their major goal is to provide bigger and better opportunities for their children. And Absolutely. And- yeah, yeah, so that, that's one of the reasons why want to um uh, really make the move um and um and the other thing um is last but not the least i would say is is they know that um you know um after staying in the uk for five years they would be eligible for british nationality and british citizenship so um and and that eventually is a very very big kind of a um i would say incentive for them because they can then use that um british citizenship or british passport to go back to their country where they come from yes. um because in middle east people with british passports and um, british nationalities do get a lot more higher salaries as compared to uh, normal people so do you find that then do people after the five years actually go back um <clears throat> i've i mean if you if you ask me ali if that really happened um I, I wouldn't say it's happened after straight after five years, mm-hmm. but it does it does kind of happen after year six, year seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they do uh, they do tend to go back and and I get a lot of queries um, in terms of Ali, do you work with hospitals in the Middle East? And I've been in the UK for the last five six years. I I came here, I got my British nationality and citizenship, and now I'm I'm looking to move move back. Have you got any any hospitals that you work with in the Middle East? Can you put me forward for those roles? So I get I do get a lot of those inquiries. Yes. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give someone who's about to start this process and wanting to work in the NHS? What general advice would you give them initially? I think um, the, the general advice I would just say to them that, look, if you're looking to come into the NHS, it's, 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 it all looks really good. But make sure you do your homework and research in terms of um, where you would you want to live, where would you want to um, settle down, because this move, um, is 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 very challenging. However, at the same time, you want to make sure that you join a hospital um, that would help you and support you in terms of your career goals. I mean, for a, a lot of these people uh, do not get specialist registration straight away. So they only get um, registration and license to practice. And the final stage of the registration and license mm-hmm. to practice uh, with the GMC is a specialist registration in their in their 
area of expertise. So, um, so once they do get special, while they're abroad, they can still get registration and license to practice. Some very, very rarely while they're abroad can apply for specialist registration, but I would say that happens very, very rarely. About 70-80% um, apply for registration and license to practice and come into the UK, start working in the NHS, and while they're working alongside, they prepare for their specialist registration. Very rarely it happens that they apply for the specialist registration while they're abroad. Yeah, I, I've, not, I've not come across many cases like that. However, it is permissible. Um, but yeah, I would just say to them that make sure if you are if your eventual end, end goal is to get the specialist registration, then you want to join a hospital or a trust that would help you towards your uh, specialist registration because you cannot work in the NHS without, um, if you want a permanent substantive post in the NHS, you need to be on the specialist register. And if you haven't got specialist registration, you cannot have a permanent substantive post in the NHS. You will only have an NHS locum or a fixed term contract, which varies from 12 months to 24 months. And that's all you can get without a specialist registration. So if you are looking for a permanent post, long-term post in the NHS, make sure that the hospital that you're looking to join is willing to offer you that support that you need towards your specialist registration. Okay, that's great. So Ali, if anyone listening uh, wanted to get in contact with you, how can they find you? Um, we are, we're on the LinkedIn, so please feel free to drop us a message on LinkedIn. Um, my, my colleagues, they post a lot of uh, posts on LinkedIn. I post a lot on LinkedIn. So um, listen, you guys can always reach out to us. If there's any issues in terms of a GMC registration, if there are any concerns that you have, which hospital to join, um, I can put you in contact with some really good hospitals who have in the past helped uh, candidates with specialist registration. And, um, and, and, and a lot of hospitals, and it's just trust now these days, are focusing on um, basically making their specialist registration process very smooth for new candidates coming from abroad because they understand that is a big USP for them. So anybody looking to join the NHS, please drop us a message on LinkedIn or reach out to um, us on LinkedIn. You can also email me on LinkedIn um, and they can also visit our website, Global Exec Solutions. So that's www globalexecsolutions.co.uk um, you can you can message us there um, my my details are always on LinkedIn so LinkedIn would be the best way to reach out to us yeah, yeah. Um, and I will leave all the links to the website the email address your LinkedIn yes um, all in the show notes um, so please please, please do go and um, check out the show notes uh, if you'd like to um, get in touch with Ali Ali, thank you very much for your time today. This has been invaluable, and I'm sure all our listeners have um, gained some really, really good advice. So thank you so much for your time. No problem at all. Really nice talking to you, Gilson. Thank you thank so much. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. I really hope you have found this episode useful. Please let me know if you have. I would love to get your feedback. And if there is something you would like me to do an episode on, uh, for IELTS or for OET, please just let me know. The details on how you can contact me are in the show notes of this episode. And remember, nothing changes if nothing changes. If you are not willing to change or implement advice and you keep doing the same thing, you will keep getting the same results again and again. Real progress, real improvement comes when you push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Please don't forget to like, subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues and on your social media so that more people can benefit too. Take care and keep working hard.